Hi, my name is Ryan Bickle, and today we're talking saving wildlife uh, with the Blank Park Zoo. And joining me today is Jesse Lowry, the conser- conservation manager at Blank Park Zoo. And Jesse, tell us a little bit about the window to the world. Okay, yeah. What I like to call the zoo um, is that we're actually a window to the wild, a place where you can bring your families and your students and your friends, have a nice affordable day out. Um, because we surveyed our audience, and we know that's what's most important to them is to come out to the zoo and have a good time and see our animals um, and see the amazing agility of the sea lion or uh, you know how beautiful the snow leopards are and the giraffe. And when they feel that sense of awe that we all get when we see those animals, we want to turn that sense of awe into a real conservation action, a real behavior change that's actually going to make a difference uh, to wildlife and natural habitats that are really in decline worldwide. All right, so you have a program at Blank Park Zoo called Plant Grow Fly. Tell us a little bit about Plant Grow Fly. What is it and what people can do to be a part of it? Sure. Just as I said that we're trying to really uh, encourage conservation actions, one of the most practical things that you can do to help save wildlife is by planting native plants, by planting a butterfly garden um, at your school, at your work, in your backyard. And that's why we've created Plant Grow Fly, is to really help create that practical action that everybody can do. And so the mission of Plant Grow Fly is really to increase habitat for pollinators through education, collaboration, and action. And um, it's really been a successful project, started in 2013 and 14. And um, it's, I think, really making a difference, increasing habitat for pollinators statewide and through the nation, actually. And this is really a collaborative effort. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. It is a collaborative effort. We have over 50 local, national, and regional partners all working together on Plant Grow Fly, Um, from county conservation boards to Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation, Drake University, Science Center, um, and and many, many more partners. And what it means to be a partner is that they're all getting Plant Grow Fly information out to their audience every year, basically to help encourage increase of habitat or planting of butterfly gardens in your yard. So tell us, why did you do this? We did this uh, to, again, to create a conservation practical action that everybody can do. It's easy to plant a butterfly garden in your yard, and it's something that is really needed because of how important pollinators are. Um, Pollinators are really any animal that spreads pollen between plants, helping them to reproduce and thrive. Um, And in Iowa, some of the most common pollinators um, are bees. Bees are actually... One of the most important pollinators, their bodies are, me- are made to collect pollen. And there's 4,000 species of bees in North America, which many people have no idea. Uh, 90% are solitary. There's 300-plus bees in Iowa. Um, wasps and hornets are also pollinators. We'll just get this less-liked pollinator out of the way right away. They're typically carnivorous during their larval stage, um, and they switch to feeding on nectar as adults. Of course, the the most uh, noticeable pollinator are butterflies. I like to call butterflies an accidental pollinator. They're not quite as efficient as bees. Their bodies aren't built to catch pollen, um, but it just accidentally gets stuck on their bodies and legs as they travel from flower to flower um, to consume nectar. They actually have taste receptors on their feet, and um, that's a way that the adult butterflies can really... um, decide which flower and plant to lay their eggs on, which host plant. Now, moths are also pollinators. 
they don't actively gather pollen either but while foraging for nectar like butterflies do it accidentally gets caught on their legs and their bodies um flies are actually pollinators as well you can thank flies for pollinating our chocolate that's always a good little tidbit that the kids like to hear there's 120,000 species of flies in north america Beetles are also included in the pollinators. There's over 30,000 species in North America. And one really fun thing I like to tell about beetles is that they were one of the first insect pollinators um, to pollinate flowering plants around 150 million years ago on magnolias and other water lilies. Last but not least, hummingbirds. We all want to see more hummingbirds in our backyards. And they're able to pollinate flowers that have those nice long tubular petals that may be inaccessible to other animals. So could you, could you give us a definition of a pollinator? Yeah, it's any animal that spreads pollen between plants, helping them to reproduce and thrive. Um, they're extremely important um, because they pollinate one-third of our global food supply, um, basically uh, directly helping to um, produce the seeds and nuts and fruits that we depend on. And if you uh, eat meat or dairy in your diet, they indirectly pollinate another one-third of your food supply um, because cows eat alfalfa, and alfalfa is pollinated by insects. Um, they're extremely important. And as a zoo conservationist, I like to pause here and, and point out that 75% of flowering plants require animal pollination. Um, so it's not just about what they can do for humans, but they're really foundational for the entire ecosystem from songbirds to grizzly bears, uh, the entire ecosystem is foundational, built upon pollinators. And just by planting these native plants, we're really helping to put back those building blocks of the ecosystem um, that has been lost due to development. And what pollinators are common in Iowa? Yeah, so we just kind of went through the, some of the most poll common pollinators, beetles and flies and butterflies and bees. Um, but across the board, these are really declining. And the reason why they're declining is basically a few different things. Uh, global climate change, disease, loss of habitat and feeding resources, um, but also some modern agricultural practices and landscaping practices. Basically, we've gone from a state covered in over 90% the tall grass prairie, one of the most biologically diverse areas um, in the whole world. When I think of a biological hotspot, I'm thinking of the Costa Rican rainforest or a coral reef, but that was Iowa a few hundred years ago. Um, I, I just read a book lately about when the settlers first came through with the plow to plow the tall grass prairie. And when the plow blade went through the prairie roots, it, it sounded like pistol shots because they had been growing for so many thousands of years and they were so deep and so strong. Um, and so basically we've gone from a biological hotspot to the most converted state in the nation. Iowa is the most converted state um, because of our black soil. But it's, it's not just farm fields, it's development of any kind. So suburbia, urban sprawl, cities, towns, farm fields, roads, is creating um, a formidable challenge for these pollinators. Basically, they can't find habitat. They can't find stuff to eat and places to lay their eggs. Okay, which is why you created Plant Grow Fly, is to help pollinators. So what can we do to help pollinators? So the most important thing that an individual can do, an individual person, a community, or a school, um, or a zoo, is to help increase habitat. So we're putting back these native plants that these pollinators have evolved with over millions of years. So when we talk about native plants, um, we're talking about host plants and nectar plants. So host plants are the plants that 
um, adult butterflies will lay their eggs on. And so I'm, I'm sure that many people are aware of the host plant of the monarch butterfly. It's milkweed. It can be any type of milkweed. Um, and I think there are 16 or 17 species of native milkweed to Iowa. And also nectar sources. And so that's any flowering plant. Um, but we also, we also um, really encourage that it's a native flowering plant because those are just um, more adapted to the climate, um, the soil conditions, and adapted to help support these native pollinators. And what makes a good butterfly garden? Okay, so yeah, so when you're thinking about putting a butterfly garden in your yard, um, you know, we really recommend um, that you go to our website first and pick your plants. We've created a garden recipe is what we call it, and it's made up of those host and nectar plants that support our native species of pollinators. And first, what you want to do is consider your space. You want to plant your butterfly garden in a place that has full sun. And what I mean by full sun is six hours or more of sun per day. Um, if you have a little bit of dappled sun or shade, that's fine too. It'll just be a little less successful. Um, the plants will be less successful. The pollinators will use it um, a little bit less efficiently. But there are certain plants that will thrive um, in, in shade, native plants as well. You want to choose nice black soil. Of course, that's good for any kind of gardening. But keep in mind, these native plants are pretty tough. And so if you've got some less than ideal soil, um, they're probably going to make it just fine. And if you think that your soil needs any kind of amendments, um, then you can go to our, their Plant Glo Grow Fly website, which is on blankparksu.com, and find out more about those specialized techniques. So next, you want to choose your plants. You want to choose plants that bloom throughout the growing season. We've got pollinators who are going to use your garden in spring, others that are going to use it in summer, others like the monarch butterfly and its southern migration that's going to use it in fall. So you want to make sure to have host and nectar plants that bloom throughout the growing season. Um, butterflies are attracted to large splashes of color. So if you're broadcasting seed and you have a whole bunch of different species in your garden, that's really great too. But if you want it to look more manicured, like maybe a traditional garden, clumping species is fine. And what I mean by that is putting a whole bunch of plugs of one species together, say purple prairie coneflower. And that's because butterflies, when they're flying over your garden and they see a nice patch of color, they'll come down and they'll land on a flower and roll their proboscis, um, the, the part of the, the butterfly that they can gather the nectar, and get into the middle of the flower and figure out how to get in through the petals and figure out how to get that nectar, which is the food source. Now they're going to drink all the nectar that they can get and move on to the next flower. And if it's the same species they know how to drink from that flower already. And so they can become a little bit more efficient foragers if you have clumped species. Um, if you want to also create tiers within your garden, different little ecological niches, um, different heights, and um, a higher diversity of plants, meaning the more different kinds of plants that you have, the more different kinds of insects that you'll have. And keep in mind, if you have specific butterflies that you want to uh, attract to your garden, um, you know, each butterfly has a host plant that they can only lay their eggs on. Like I said, the monarch can only lay their eggs on milkweed. Some butterflies can lay their eggs on several different host plants, some only one. Um, and so you can also plan your garden uh, by the individual insect species that you want to see. Now, just talk a little bit more about how native plants are best. 
Um, of course, these are the plants that are adapted to our soil conditions, the how much precipitation we get per year, um, and they're really hardy. They're not going to require fertilizers. We never want to put pesticides on any kind of a butterfly garden. Once they're established, they're going to require less watering, um, and they're, and they're going to provide permanent shelter and food for all kinds of wildlife. So really what you're doing, again, is creating this ecosystem, putting the building blocks back together that we've lost through development to support all the native animals um, that, that want to use this habitat. They're less likely to become invasive, as non-natives are, and they really just promote all kinds of biodiversity in your backyard. Now, many people ask, should I buy little plants or should I plant seeds? And that's a very common question. It just depends on how much work you want to put in and, and what you want the, the outcome to be. If you have a small garden or you're a novice gardener, we always suggest that you use plugs. Um, if you have a larger area or you're a little bit more experienced, use seed. What I also suggest to people is to use a little bit of both. If you've got a 10 by 10 or even a 5 by 5 garden that you want to put in your backyard, start out with some plugs that you know what they are. Um, plan out your garden. Maybe you want to put the host plants in the middle because remember this is like the nursery of the garden. You want to put the nectar sources around the outside um, to give the host plants a little bit more shelter. And then sprinkle some seed in. Now, just keep in mind, you'll have to watch when those seeds start germinating. You're probably not going to know right away, is that a weed or is that something that I want in my garden? And just let it get a little bit bigger and keep an eye on it. And you can look up on our website. And, um, you know, Iowa DNR has, a great, has great resources as well um, and figure out uh, what those seeds are. So a combination is really fun if you, if you really want to learn these plants well. Um, get out and, and plant your garden um, and make it a, a family event. Get the kids involved. Um, get out and uh, really make it something uh, that's going to be fun for the whole family. And it will be something to look at and enjoy throughout the entire year. There'll be different things to see in the spring when your plants are coming up. Of course, in the summer when everything's in full bloom and you've got lots of insects. Even in the wintertime, you want to keep those stalks up. You don't want to uh, clear your garden in the fall like we're so used to doing because many of our native bee species, for example, are cavity nesters and they'll nest inside those hollow grass stems. So keep it up all winter. It provides some interest in your yard and some habitat for some mammals and others uh, through the winter. There's a couple other things you can do in your garden. Uh, pollinators love basking spots. And what I mean by that is just a flat rock in your garden, a place for the pollinators to dry off after a, a cold rain or in the morning. Um, again, winter shelter. Don't clear your garden until spring. You could also put um, just a muddy patch in your garden, just some mud and some sand. And that's because many species of butterflies, they do a behavior called puddling. And it's where they, they consume this muddy water to get some nu uh, nutrients that they need to, to complete their life cycle. And the last thing that you can do is provide some what we call sweet treats, some rotting fruit or nectar like you would for a hummingbird feeder. But keep in mind that might attract some of those less like, liked pollinators as well. So use that one sparingly. And really maintenance on a, a garden doesn't have to be a whole lot. I know I planted a, a wildflower garden, you know, two or three years ago and really haven't done anything with it. And every year it pops back up and about June or July, it looks pretty good. And uh, so tell us a little bit about maintenance of these gardens. 
Sure. If you're planting from seed, um, when you're planting native seed, there's a saying, the first year they sleep, the second year they creep, the third year they leap. And that's because for every foot of plant you see above the ground, there's one to three feet of plant and the root system underground. And so really, you need to be careful with watering um, and weeding for the first three years. And then after that, there's really not going to be any more space in your garden for the weeds to grow. These native plants, like I said, are adapted to our soil conditions, and they're going to crowd out the native weeds. We recommend just hand weeding or going in there with, with a hoe or other garden tools. Mulching is fine. Now, keep in mind, these native plants will produce seed if you want them to expand in your garden. Uh, you're not going to want to have too much mulch, you know, uh, on the dirt. You want the seeds to have a nice contact with the dirt. And just make sure you water well, especially right after you plant your garden and any dry spells. And really, uh, you're not, you shouldn't have too many problems with pests. Um, and unless you have a real dry spell, you're not going to have to water this too much again because they're native plants. So once they're established, they're a lot easier to take care of than a lot of these exotic plants that we're used to seeing in home gardening. And so as you're planting these gardens, Jesse, you want to know about about it. So what what do you ask people to do so that you can find out how many gardens that Plant Grow Flies uh, helped out? Sure. We would love for everybody who is planting these gardens to register it with Plant Grow Fly. And what I mean by that is this, a simple, free online form. It takes about five minutes. Um, it's on blankparksu.com. And you fill out this form, let us know what plants you used, what inspired you to plant your garden. You get to name your garden. Um, tell us where your garden is located, how big it is, how long you've been growing it. Some of our favorite names are Bonsai Betty's Butterfly Bar and Garden of Whedon. Um, my garden name is um, Elena's Bed and Breakfast for Butterflies and Bees. And so it's a really fun activity that you can do with your family. And people tell us what inspired them. And that's where we get these really neat stories about, I just had a baby girl. I want her to grow up to be a conservationist too. Or my grandmother just passed away and I want to carry on her legacy of gardening. And it's just a fantastic way for us to really measure how much habitat is out there. When we get this registration form in, we'll put a little dot on a map on our uh, website, recognizing your garden, and we'll send you a little nifty certificate in the mail. And then you'll be included in this, this growing community of concerned citizens and organizations who are planting uh, these habitats for pollinators. You can order a little garden sign from the zoo um, showing your neighbors your support for our pollinators. Um, and to date, we have 849 gardens, and we're hoping to get um, to more and more gardens every year. At the end of this year, hoping to get to 1,000 gardens. So hoping to everyone to come out and check out our website. And by the way, we do have everything you need to know about how to plant these gardens on our website, where you need to go to get your plants. Um, we want to make sure that you're going to local greenhouses. You need to make sure that these plants have not been treated with insecticides. Um, it's pretty um, self-explanatory, but we want to create a sanctuary, an oasis for these beneficial insects. And so you really need to be careful where you buy your plants. We've got all that information on our website. Um, even for super novice gardeners, we've got a YouTube video on how to plant a plug. So no matter what your gardening level is, um, we've got it all on our website. And that's uh, plantgrowfly.com. You can also get to it from blankparkzoo.com. And I think for the rest of the, uh, the, the half hour here, we're going to talk about the monarch butterfly. And tell us a little bit about the monarch butterfly and why that is so important. 
Sure. The monarch butterfly is actually um, the most recognizable insect in the world. And weighing less than a paperclip, it embarks on one of the longest migrations known to any animal on Earth. And so let's start out by going through this migration path. They overwinter in the fir forest just west of Mexico City. And they clump around these fir trees. And I've never seen it myself in person, um, but many of us have seen pictures of these beautiful evergreen trees and their branches hanging low down to the ground um, under the weight of a million butterflies. They clump around the trees to stay warm, um, butterfly on top of butterfly. And it's an amazing sight to see. They wake up from a half hibernation or what we sometimes call torpor and maybe would take a sip from uh, the creek or a sip of nectar from any flowering plants on warm days in the wintertime. And then in early spring, they uh, really come out of their, of their hibernation and start following the bloom of milkweed through the central part of the United States and through successive generations, sometimes make it all the way to Canada. And so the first generation will make it to about Texas. They'll find a milkweed plant, they'll lay their eggs, and die. The second generation will make it maybe to Oklahoma. The third generation might make it to Missouri or Iowa and so on. And through these successive generations, many butterflies will make it all the way to Canada following the bloom of milkweed. And so now when they make it to Canada, uh, we've made it through the entire summer and we're in September. And this is the really cool part, I think. Uh, somehow nature tells the butterflies to make the super generation. They're physiologically different from preceding generations made to fly long distances um, with elongated wings meant to not reproduce for many months and to live for many months instead of just a few weeks like the preceding generations. Um, and they embark on their southern migration. Now, this is when we see those big groups of monarch butterflies and so many monarch butterflies flying over uh, Iowa in September. The peak of the migration is usually about September 1st to September 20th here in Iowa. And nobody really knows how they make it back to Iowa. Um, it has something to do with uh, magnetic fields and, and weather powder patterns. Um, but somehow these they little butterflies, GPS, right? they might have a little monarch GPS. Yeah. Somehow they make it back to Mexico to a place they've never been before. Um, and so now it's around Halloween time, and when they make it back to Mexico, it's around the Day of the Dead Festival um, in Mexico, and that is a wonderful tradition where they say um, the butterflies returning home are the spirits of their fallen ancestors, which is a really neat part of the story. So when they get back to Mexico, they clump around the trees again, and that's when we can count them. We don't count the individual butterflies um, but we measure the habitat in which they occur. And monarch butterflies have decreased uh, 90% in the past 20 years. They've gone from about 18 hectares to about 0.67 in 2014. In the last couple of years, there's been a slight uptick in the population. Um, and that, I think, is due to many of the habitat restoration projects that we have across the country, really across partnerships between three countries, Mexico and the U.S. and Canada. Um, but also we've had a couple good weather years for monarchs in the past few years. Um, but basically the population is extremely low. And the population of monarchs is low really for two reasons. Um, one is illegal logging and it's overwintering grounds in Mexico. 
but it's now a World Heritage Site, and they're really taking great strides to take care of that and protect that uh, overwintering ground. And the other is loss of milkweed in the Midwest. Um, many of the monarchs who make it to Mexico are bred in the Midwest on milkweed. And milkweed has been declining in our landscape uh, for decades now. And so one thing that we can do, the most important thing that we can do is put it back into the environment. And it really can go in backyard gardens. It can go in ditches. It can go on under utility byways. It can go along railroad tracks. We need to put in this habitat every possible place that it can go. And that's why these backyard gardens um, are so, so important. Many maybe have heard of the I-35 Monarch Flyway. Um, and that is a federal program that's uh, restoring milkweed 50 miles on either side of I-35 because the I-35 corridor mirrors the, mi the monarch migration. And so that really, I think, drives home exactly how important Iowa is to the story of the monarch butterfly, something that so many people are nostalgic about and I think want to really save. Yeah, talk about monarch tagging. I saw you do that last fall, and that was really interesting. Sure. So uh, University of Kansas or Monarch Watch has a really neat program called Monarch Tagging. And what you can do in the southern migration time is go out with a net and there's directions online on how to do this properly. Very carefully catch a butterfly in your net, a monarch butterfly, and take it out and you can attach a little sticker. On that sticker, there's a serial number and um, other information. Um, you record it, send it back to Monarch Watch and let the butterfly go on its way to Mexico. Now, if it's found in Mexico, first of all, they pay um, the Mexican folks there some money every time they turn in a tag. So that's a great sustainable livelihood to support um, the communities down there. And as well, they can track the migration. If they find a butterfly that was tagged at Blank Park Zoo, they can track it back to Blank Park Zoo. And so that's how scientists um, track the migration. And that's how we know so many of the monarchs that are in Mexico came from Iowa in the Midwest, basically from north of St. Louis to about the Canadian border. And that's why it's so important. Um, you know, I also want to mention our Monarch Festival. We have it every year here at the zoo in September, right in the middle of the, of the migration of the monarch butterfly. Um, and so we partner with the Latino Heritage Festival and celebrate the migration of the monarch from Iowa to Mexico. And we've got usually puppet shows and mariachi bands, but the culminating event of the day is the bug parade. And that's where kids get to dress up as their favorite insect and take a symbolic migration through the zoo. All right. Yeah. And then just to wrap up, um, talk about the Plant Grow Fly website just a little bit more and what the resources are that you can find on there. So go to plantgrowfly.com. It's on the Blank Park Zoo website. You find everything you need to know about how to plant a butterfly garden, how to register your garden with the project, how to identify butterflies you find in your yard, in your garden, about all of our partners that are helping us with this project, about the monarch butterfly and its amazing migration, um, and really about how hardy and resilient these insects are and how just the simple act of planting these beautiful flowering plants and grasses in your backyard, at your school, at the zoo, in your community garden can really give these pollinators um, the help that they need. They're so important to our daily lives. Um, and just by doing this fun, easy activity with your family, you can help them survive. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Jesse. And thank you for joining us for Saving Wildlife at the Blank Park Zoo. And Blank Park Zoo is open just about every day of the year. 
9 to 5 in the summer, 10 to 4 in the winter. You can check out our website at blankparkzoo.com for all the details and uh, fun activities that are going on uh, on each day of the year. So we'll see you next time here on Saving Wildlife with the Blank Park Zoo.